Heavenly Father, we do look to you this morning to guide us into the truth. We ask that you would expand our understanding of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for us. Help us to see what he has come to do and what he's accomplishing. Father, help us to worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to encourage you to open your Bibles again to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to look this morning at Mark chapter 1, verses 1, excuse me, verses 21 through 39. The Gospel of Mark chapter 1, verse 21 to 39. Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came out, or he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. This is the Word of God. Would you please have a seat? I was thinking about how Mark begins his book. He talks about the beginning of the gospel and about the way we often think about the gospel and what exactly is that. And I know we've talked about this before, but there is, you know, perhaps the most common way of breaking down or explaining the gospel is, the gospel is that Jesus came and died on the cross in order to pay the debt that you owe to God for your sins. We think of that as the gospel, and certainly that is good news, and certainly that is something that Jesus did. But it is only 
one piece of the good news. It's only an aspect of something that Jesus did. The proclamation, the good news, was an an entirely larger message than that than just that one work that Jesus accomplished. When Mark begins, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he's announcing us to us, Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. This one that was long promised from long ago. He is the Son of God. In other words, he's been endowed with the very power and authority of God. And that specifically is the good news. That's what's being announced, that He is a King. So when we think about that, I was thinking about a, a passage that we, we often read at Christmas time about Jesus Himself from Isaiah chapter 9, where it talks about this idea of Him being uh, coming from Galilee. It says, "...but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish." In the former time, He brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil." For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Here's this familiar Christmas passage that we read and it's announcing Jesus. He is the King who is to sit on David's throne, but He's more than a King. He is, he is mighty God. He is everlasting Father. He is the Prince of Peace. This is the proclamation that, that was being announced with the gospel. It's that Jesus is this long-awaited king. When we think about having a relationship with Jesus, I think we tend to think of having a relationship with Jesus as someone who's a friend, someone who can, we can go to when we're in trouble, someone who is just there to cry, you know, to, to, to cry upon if we need it, or to ask Him for help if we're experiencing some trouble. But we don't often think of Jesus as our commander-in-chief, as our king, as our leader, as the one to whom we swear some allegiance. If we were in medieval times that we would be swearing our fealty to, whereas we're waking up each morning and saying, Lord, my king, what are my orders today? You know, I think about the Lord's prayer, and that's really what it is doing. It's realigning our, our understanding of what does it mean for Jesus to be our King. What are we praying? Your kingdom would come. Your will would be done. That's, in essence, what the message of the gospel is meant to produce, the coming of the kingdom of God, the, the doing of the will of God. I was thinking about the nature of, of how people 
come to Christ and are converted, and many people have different stories of how they came to, the, to put faith in Jesus Christ, and you know, many of them might tell you a story you know, like I could at 10 years old and noticing my mother being very excited about reading the Bible and her relationship with God and, and asking her about what was going on in her life, and she told me about, you know, Jesus had come and died on the cross for your sins, and if you ask Him into your heart, you know, you go to heaven and you don't go to hell. And Well, that sounded really good to me as a 10-year-old, so praying this prayer, Jesus, come unto my heart. But, you know, for many of us, and it's not that that's a, a bad prayer, but for many of us, we have no idea what that actually means. What does it mean for Jesus to come into your heart? I want to tell you a different kind of conversion story. It also kind of reminding me of Christmas Day, 800 A.D., a man by the name of Charlemagne was crowned by the, the, uh, the Pope at the time to be the new restorer of the, the Roman Empire. And one of Char- Charlemagne was this uh, larger-than-life figure. He was a warrior of warriors. He was a, it was a man who had accomplished great things among the French already, the Franks in the various tribes and uniting them together. And as he was crowned the king, the expectation was that he would bring Christendom throughout what used to be the ancient Roman Empire, that he would restore it. And so he would go into the various tribes of the lands of people who were worshiping uh, the pagan gods, and he would seek to bring them under the kingdom of Christ. But his method of evangelism was a little bit different than ours, as you can imagine. For his method was you will be baptized or you will have your head cut off. There was one particular Saxon leader by the name of Wittekind who was elusive of Charlemagne's many attempts to bring him under his reign. And every time he'd go up to try and find him, he would, he would do battle and skirmish and he would able, always able to escape. For years and years, Charlemagne was frustrated with this this elusive pagan worshiper, Wittekind. But eventually, he did meet him in battle, and eventually he did defeat his band of warriors, and he brought Wittekind before him and had him bow and essentially told him the same thing. You are to be baptized or you are to receive the sword. So as you might imagine, he submitted to being baptized. And you could ask yourself, can we consider that a genuine conversion? People are shaking their heads. And I would say, yes. And not because his heart was in it, but he understood something about authority and kingship and who you bowed to, because his gods, he bowed to them, he looked to them. He considered them his masters. But the minute that he was baptized, it was a significant moment in his life, and he knew that if he was baptized, his other gods would turn away from him. And he had no other person, no other god to go before except this one that he had now put his faith in. Obviously, he didn't know about the, perhaps the god or this goodness or all these many things, but one thing he did that many of us in today, when we convert to Christ, is he gave his allegiance to this new god new to him anyway. And while we might say, well, that's not a conversion of love, he didn't necessarily love him, perhaps, he knew what it meant to serve him as his king. 
And, and, and we can commend that. And if you look at the, the history books, when they talk about this Vitekind and what he did, he was actually uh, a major player in promoting the gospel throughout the tribes later in his life, building schools that would train up future disciples. So I would say, yes, in retrospect, his conversion was real, though it's not the kind that we usually do today. And you think, why was he so successful in the various things that he was doing? And I think because he understood that when you, when you are converted to Christianity, what it means is you are coming under, you're giving your allegiance to a king. Your life is not your own. It's been bought with a price. You have sworn fealty to a king. That's the gospel in a nutshell. Now, when Jesus came on the scene, he was announced okay, the king you've long awaited for is here. The Jews had some, some different expectations that Jesus didn't quite meet with regard to what does it mean to be a king. And so when, when Mark, who is, again, perhaps giving us Peter's explanation of things, preaching, the first thing he does when he begins his gospel is to help us understand the nature of what Jesus is doing as king. How do we understand Jesus as king? Because the great hope of Jesus when He came, as we just read from Isaiah chapter 9, as He would come, what does it say? For the yoke of His burden, the staff of His shoulder, the rod of His oppressor, you have broken. You have broken the rod of the oppressor of your people. Now, the Jews assumed that oppressor that He was going to break the yoke of was the, the Roman Empire, because they did rule in the land from a government perspective. But He never confronted the Roman Empire. And you think, well, he doesn't meet the expectation. But it wasn't that he didn't confront any authority. Because the real, the, the real thing that we have to understand is that the, the Rome wasn't the principal oppressor. It wasn't the head dog, as it were, that were causing all the problems. There was one higher than Rome. There was an authority greater than Rome, and that's who Jesus displayed his authority to. And that's what we begin to see. It's the very first thing that that Mark is showing us about the nature of this king is he is coming to confront the enemy of God's people. So I want, that's the first thing we're going to look at. We're going to look at Jesus' power on display, showing his authority and the purpose that he has come in that first in his earthly ministry as we go through this and unpack these verses. So in terms of understanding the power that he puts on display... We'll look at these first few verses that we read, beginning in verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, which, by the way, Capernaum is a city on the Sea of Galilee. So it's this region of Galilee that we're just reading about on the very northwest corner of the sea. It was a, a wealthy fishing town, a commercial fishing town. And it's where Simon, uh, Simon, who we know as, as Peter, lived. So you can understand why Peter was a fisherman. And he was probably a well-to-do fisherman, as it is, a, a successful fisherman as they're meeting in his house, and uh, tradition would hold it later that the church would meet in Simon Peter's house. And as archaeologists have uncovered what they believe to be Peter's house, it was no insignificant structure. So there's this, there, that's what Capernaum is, that's where the setting that's happening here. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. So it's the synagogue, he's teaching, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority. 
not as the scribes. So, he doesn't give us a whole lot of details. He doesn't tell us anything that he's saying other than the nature of his teaching has some element of self-authority. It's not like the scribes who would come in and quote from the other leaders in the past who have been recognized as, a, as authoritative teachers. The, the practice of teaching in the synagogue started during the exile. Uh, when they weren't able to get back to the temple, they would meet together in the places where they'd been exiled, and if there was at least 10 Jews in that town, they could form what they called a synagogue, and they would gather on the Sabbath for a scribe or a teacher to stand up and read from the Scriptures, for that would have been the copy they had of the Scriptures, and he would explain what it means. And often he would do that by quoting the many other teachers and scribes for, for, for authority. And preachers today, we will do that too. We might quote you know, an R.C. Sproul here or there, or Tim Keller or some other commentator, one who's been recognized as educated. We do that. But Jesus didn't do that. Some, something about the nature of His teaching was never relying upon other past teachers. Matthew gives us a little bit of a hint in the Sermon on the Mount when he would say, you have heard that it was written or you've read in the past or you've heard that it was said, but I say to you this. Now, I don't know if that's what he is doing potentially in this, town, in, in this particular day in the synagogue, but we know whatever he was doing, however he was saying it, it was, the people were astonished at him. Now, the Greek word there for astonished is, is not an insignificant word. If the Greek word is ekpleso, it comes from the, uh, the Greek verb pleso, which means to strike, like to strike hard, to significantly. It's, to, it's like to, what he said was, so, was striking to them, so much so that they couldn't remain on the fence. They weren't going to go home and say, well, that was interesting or that was nice. They're being confronted with someone who is making, by the nature of his preaching, some significant claim about his own authority. So, you're either going to go home thinking, I need to submit to this guy's authority, or you're going to go home thinking, this guy is crazy and full of himself. You're not going to go home and not be moved to do one of the two things. They were astonished at his teaching. And so, you're in this position where you're forced to make an evaluation of this Jesus person, and is this authority valid or not? And while you're doing that, as you're making that evaluation, more happens. Verse 23, and, and immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, "'What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God.'" Now, that's, that's an interesting thing in of itself. You think, the synagogue is... is a gathering of Jewish people who are seeking to worship God. So you might ask the question, well, what is a man doing in the synagogue who's demon-possessed? Did they know it? More than likely, up until this moment, they had no idea there was someone in their midst who was possessed by a demon. But somehow, in the presence of Jesus, this demon can no longer stay hidden. He knows who Jesus is, and he's terrified. And so he cries out, and again, the word cries out is not, you know, a whimper. This is a scream. He screams out. 
he cries out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Let's break that down a little bit. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? He's talking about, this is an individual demon, but he's talking in the plural sense because he's speaking on behalf of, you can see, the whole race of demons if you want to think of it that way. What have you to do with us? Now, why would he say such a thing? Because clearly he understands there is a difference of domain. Jesus, you are from the kingdom of heaven. We are in the domain of earth. This is where we've been sent. When Satan and his angels fell, they came and they, they took domain of the earth. That's why we read about the many times that the earth is referred to as the domain of darkness. Even in that Isaiah passage we talked about. This is our domain. This is where we rule. What are you doing here? What do you have to do with us? Because suddenly we see happening a clash of kingdoms coming right there in this room. The clash of the kingdom of heaven and the clash of the domain of darkness. Because you see, it it wasn't the Romans that were the big dogs. It was Satan and his minions that were the big dogs. And that's who Jesus is confronting. What have you to do with us? Have you come to destroy us? They know that when the clash of kingdoms happen, they don't stand a chance. They know they have no chance. Have you come to destroy us? We know who you are, the Holy One of God, as though if we can somehow, it's their their last resort, if we can somehow name you, we we can... put you in your place. We can claim some measure of authority over you. And Jesus says something interesting. He just says, be silent. He says, shut up, is what he's saying. And leave him. And he casts him out. And what's interesting, the way he casts him out in such a way that the man is under convulsions. He's being, there's, there's a violent exit of this demon from this man now, if we would normally read this, we might come to the, the assumption that this man is hurt in the process because that would be the, the demons. He doesn't want to go out without doing some damage. But Luke tells us in a parallel account that the man was not harmed at all. But what we see is this clash of kingdoms. Jesus is claiming absolute authority over the domain of darkness. Because what happens any time a dark room and the light is turned on? The darkness flees. There's a reason why that imagery is so pervasive about the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And this becomes a common theme within the Gospels, the encounters with the the demonic spirits, these unclean spirits are continually being cast out. People are being dispossessed. There's one explanation when Jesus is explaining how He does this. He says, look, one stronger than the strong man is here. I am binding Satan. Why? so that I might set free those whom He has taken captive that belong to me." So He's put on display His power by confronting the real authority over the domain of earth. This is the kind of kingship that Jesus is bringing. And the next thing He puts on display is He's he's showing that He can undo the effects of the curse. When He goes into Simon Peter's house, He brings… 
they bring him to his mother-in-law who's laying sick with a fever, and he comes and lifts her up, and immediately it says the fever leaves her, and she begins to serve them, which is interesting. If you've ever had a fever and you take some medicine or it finally leaves you, you find yourself needing some recovery time, a little bit of weariness, but there's none of that. She goes immediately from being in bed with a fever to serving the whole party that's there. It is a complete restoration that she's experienced. And then we read about what happens. It wasn't just her. What happens then? That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So he's not just the king who confronts the kingdom, the domain of darkness, and pushes it out. He's also the one who can completely lift the effects of the curse. This is how Mark is beginning to introduce Jesus. This is what the king is going to do. This is what the king does. Now, the effect is pretty remarkable. The whole town hears about it. His fame is spreading. Everyone who's got someone sick in their family brings them to his door, and he's healing them all. There's no discrimination. Interesting. None. Whether they're a follower or not is not a prerequisite. He heals them all. And you can imagine that's pretty attractive as more and more people throughout the region begin to come. But that next morning, Jesus is nowhere to be found. He's nowhere to be found. All the people are clamoring around looking for Him, but He's hidden Himself in some secret place, as we read in verse 35, and rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. Everyone is looking for you. And the, we didn't read the verses right before this, but he has called Peter as one of his disciples. Simon Peter is one of his disciples, so he is a disciple. You can imagine Peter, Simon is pretty excited about what he's seen. This is a great way to start a ministry. The whole town is coming out. Man, we just grew our church in one day. Can't wait to perhaps see what else is going on. The whole town is looking for Jesus. His intent is to bring Jesus back to where all the people who are looking for Him, seeking Him, He can be there for. But Jesus doesn't do that. And that, that's fascinating because we're, we're finding out from this the purpose of Jesus coming. We see His power was on display. Now we consider what His purpose was. And His purpose isn't to begin some great ministry in Galilee. In fact, He says, we're leaving. We're out of here. We're going someplace else. All these people who have needs in this town to be healed or dispossessed, we're not going to address Because there's more significant matters to be accomplished. There's a greater purpose I have than just healing people. And he says it in response to them in verse 38. 
Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. I did not come here to heal you or even to dispossess you of those demonic influences. Because what happened to all those people who were healed? They still grew old, they still died, they got sick again. And even those people who had demons cast out, could they have been repossessed? Jesus says at one time, doesn't He say, when, a, when an unclean spirit leaves a person and he wanders in the arid places and he comes back and finds that person empty, he brings seven demons more evil than himself and occupies it and he's worse off than he was before. So these healings that Jesus does, these dispossessions that Jesus does are temporary at best. And He doesn't do them all the time. So you think, well, why does He heal people then? Why did He cast out the demons? Well, somehow the healings and the casting out of demons was serving His ultimate purpose, which He just explained. Why did I come out? To preach throughout the land that the kingdom of God is here. So what do these healings and dispossessions do for Jesus' message? They show that God is behind it. That's their purpose. Their purpose is to provide evidence that what I'm saying is true. You wondered about this authority. You were astonished at this authority that I put on and display when I spoke. Well, now I've put proof behind it. I've shown you that my authority is genuine, it's real, because the work of God is clearly evident. So the healings, the casting out of unclean spirits, of demons, has primary purpose of validating and verifying the message that Jesus is proclaiming, that I am the Christ. I am the Christ. So ultimately, the gospel is set before you so that as you find yourself, like one of those people in the synagogue, looking and considering the fact that Jesus is, is speaking in such a way that he, he is showing His own authority, and He's demonstrating and doing such a thing that showing that authority is coming from God and it's confronting the greatest enemy in this domain. And there's two responses that we see in the text. There's astonishment and there's terror. The demons are terrified. Have you come to destroy us? And when He leaves, they scream, they cry out in anguish. So which is the right response for us? There are times when Jesus' disciples, when they get a glimpse of Jesus being God Himself, for example, Peter, after his huge catch of fish, says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. There's a bit of terror when you come into the presence of God Himself. It's as suddenly there's a mirror reflected back at you to show you all the ways in which I have not been serving my King. I have not been living a life showing my allegiance to the will of God, been going my own way, doing my own thing, 
filling my own agenda, looking at God as a lucky rabbit's foot that I stick in my back pocket and I pull out when I need Him. All of those things come out when we come into confrontation with the king. There is terror. There's the reality that you are the king, and I haven't been living that way. But there should also be astonishment because that king is clearing house. He's pushing out the domain of darkness. He is laying the pathway to a new heavens and a new earth where he will one day reign in righteousness. You think, well, why hasn't he done that yet? Why isn't it here yet? There's only one reason why is that, because God is patient. He doesn't want any of His own to perish. In other words, He's saying that for every day that He's not back yet is a day for you to choose. Who will you follow? Who is your King? That's the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for Mark's gospel and revealing the nature of Jesus' kingship to us. We are also very aware that every day we often wake up not considering what your agenda might be for us. Even Jesus spent every morning in a desolate place in prayer that He might know your will that He could say, I and the Father are one. I do nothing except what my Father, I see my Father doing. Lord, would You help us to choose to follow Jesus as our King, to take time every day to go before Your throne and say, what are Your orders? What are Your marching orders today? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.